If you've ever wondered exactly what Web3 is and how it's different from the world of internet commerce today, we have an answer. Welcome to the future of what? I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. On today's episode, we talked to Bruno Gez of Revelator about his business and the future of music commerce. It's all coming up on the future of what? My guest today is Bruno Gez, the founder and CEO of Revelator. Bruno, welcome back to the future of what? Thank you. It's been it's great to be back and great to be talking to you today, Portia. I know it's wonderful to talk to you. It's so fun to talk to someone who was sort of starting their company when we first spoke. And now, you know, Revelator is a seasoned teenager of a company. Tell me about it. I, <laughs> I have all the gray hairs to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us, tell us what uh, you know to get started. What what has Revelator turned into? It's a it's a business to business solution, correct? Yes, it's always been a business to business solution because I came from the label side. I ran a record label for twenty five years. So when I started thinking about when I moved to Israel, actually after about spending thirty years in L.A., I needed a solution to really have this digital transformation moment for the business, for the label. And you know, back in the early days, there were no really good solutions to you know, online as a web application to be able to run your label, to be able mm-hmm. to you know, manage your catalog and your metadata, your digital assets, your rights management, your you know, supply chain distribution, content delivery, and grab all that data, you know, the consumption data, the financial data, be able to provide analytics and visualization to understand how as a business, you know, things are going, what songs are performing, what artists, you know, are doing well or not, or where do you focus your your effort? So I needed to build that, really. That's what became Revelator as an offshoot of uh, initially trying to do that for my label. I saw a bigger opportunity that it wasn't a problem only that was unique to me. It was actually a problem that, you know, pretty much all the labels and distributors had in trying to manage the the artist's relationship with more transparency, more efficiency, you know, around the the music streaming economy, and at the time everybody was kind of yearning and screaming for more transparency in the data side of it. So initially we focused a lot on the analytics side, and then I kind of realized that, you know, if there was one key service that everyone needed was to get paid, and to get paid mm-hmm. faster and more efficiently, because that right, was right. really kind of broken, right? As a label, it's very easy to do semi-annual you know, recording agreements, you know, or you could you know, get better and do quarterly. But at the end of the day, you know, when we used to have physical, it was impossible to do it faster. Yeah, now right, that you're, right. you know, physical is gone and digital is really the dominant business model, and you receive data on a daily basis and on a monthly basis, then it's a challenge, yes, but it's actually possible to really create those pipelines that provide those efficiencies and automations around workflows that could make you run better and faster as a business. And I thought that was really, you know, enticing to companies to say, hey, let's help you run better as a business. Absolutely. 
And have you seen a shift in your client base based on, you know, the changes that we've seen in the industry where artists don't necessarily have labels anymore, but they have teams, right? You know, I always say people are like, oh, you don't need a record label. And I'm like, well, you you may not need a record label per se, but you sure do need a team who does all the things that record labels do because, 100%. you know, artists can't actually do that. Yeah. And it's becoming a more collaborative economy in that sense. You know, managers get a cut, you know, sometimes other people need to be incentivized as well to participate in the marketing and the promotion and the production and the, you know, and it's hard to keep track of all those cuts, all those splits and shares. So unless you have a way to track and automate, you know, the attribution of everyone's, you know, uh, I guess you could say percentages or shares in a song in a copyright, then it's gonna still be very manual, very Excel driven. So I think one of the key things I wanted to do was really automate all the royalty splits and the payment side of it for all the different contributors and participants that are involved in the sound recording and the work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we created a, a contracting system on the platform. That way we could actually say, okay, who are the beneficiaries? What are their splits and on what assets? so that we can really automate all the royalty flows and the payments to all those beneficiaries. And I think that was really pivotal and and crucial for us to not just be only perceived as a distribution platform, but also Mm -hmm. be able to kind of manage royalties, but also splits to different types of contributors. Because you're talking about teams of people. Sometimes Mm -hmm. an A&R person gets a commission or an override or producer points. So you need to have a way of really managing that in a very programmatic way at the end of the day. So I do think there will always be labels because labels are curators of communities. You know, I'll always love Verve and Blue Note for jazz and I'll always love Island and Trojan and others for reggae and other stuff like that. So at the end of the day, they really, you know, become a a sound and a sound and a community around that sound. So I don't think that ever goes away, even though it's a lot easier today for artists to self-distribute it doesn't mean that it's easy for them to become successful unless they have a team working with them. I agree with you. Absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, right at the moment where people started saying, oh, you don't need a label anymore because of, you know, the Internet, the Internet became so crowded with music, you know, 100,000 new songs uploaded to Spotify every day or whatever the current statistic is, that you more than ever needed the curatorial aspect of a label. You know, I mean, playlists sprang up and people started, you know, subscribing to playlists because they needed some way to find things in the massive ocean of sound. So it is funny. It's like at the very moment when labels became, you know, supposedly obsolete, they also became more necessary than ever, but maybe for a different reason, like you're saying. And label services, right? That's been the big shift for them to, you know, go from, you know, curation and, you know, selecting which artists they want to work with but also they need to have something more than just distribution. And that's label services. Yep. So let's have you define for the listening audience Web3. So the current understanding of what is Web3. Well, at its most, you know, primitive, you know, it's the next internet and it's an internet based on, you know, uh, value exchange and, and value transfer where you could actually track, you know, all the, transactions 
that are recorded on the ledger. And we're talking about distributed ledger, we're talking about blockchains, Web3, you know, are all the applications and protocols built on top of distributed ledgers and blockchains. So we look at that as needing to provide, you know, transform a song into a token, right? That becomes a music NFT, that's one use case. You know, some people call it crypto assets if there's a financial, you know, layer to it. But I really look at it as an underlying infrastructure for tracking, you know, traceability, automating royalty payments, defining the definition of rights holders within a smart contract. To me, you know, Web3 at its broadest sense is, you know, what the internet should have been from the start. So now we're in the third iteration of the internet for the next five, 10 years. And how is it working for you? I mean, I feel like, I feel like we haven't fully realized that. Oh, no, for sure not. You know, I spent the last five years really building up this thesis that, you know, if you could bring music assets into digital assets and start to track the rights and the royalty flows and bring more transparency and efficiency, then, you know, I would have achieved my mission and my vision as well. You know, I can look back to 2015 and 2016 when I was thinking about these things. And it wasn't until about 2018 that I started developing a digital wallet for you know music rights and royalties. And 2019, where I started working with rights organizations. 2020, working with major publishers on some of these you know pilots. Now in 2023, we're working with one of the largest CMOs in Europe on on tokenizing publishing assets. And we're still not having any adoption and scale that is you know meaningful yet from an industry perspective. But what we are seeing is a lot more interest in different use cases, right? Music NFTs have become a topic you know, over the last two years. I think there've been a lot of excitement because the, you know, the crypto market was in a bull cycle. So everybody saw you know, big opportunities. And now when it's in the bear cycle, as it is today, everyone's dismissing it like it has no value. But I believe that the infrastructure and the technology has a lot of value for the future of media and IP, music IP. And the, the ones that are building the infrastructure today are going to be you know, uh, differentiated and be able to actually license music into games, into blockchain games, into you know, metaverse type of projects like Decentraland or Sandbox or things like that. So the ones who don't have that technology are gonna look to partner with companies that do, because that will be the way you monetize content and, you know, in, in the next five to 10 years. So it's a very slow curve of adoption. And I, I think you know, uh, markets come and go in terms of bull and bear cycles, but the technology is pivotal and, and f- formative for the next internet. So um, we're still investing in it. You know, we're a team of 60 people and 20 of that is on the Web3 technologies. You know, we've built all the infrastructure, so we feel really excited to actually participate in providing, you know, infrastructure. But at the end of the day, it's got to take a back seat. It's got to be under the hood. And people will not care about what a token or an NFT is or even should have to use the word Web3 when they want to sell, you know, something. It's digital merchandise at the end of the day or digital collectibles. So the more we can abstract the complexity of the technology, the easier it will be for people to use it. And I think that's part of the challenges we try to solve. 
you know, around the infrastructure challenges of wallets and tokenization, smart contracts and payments, you know, rights management, all those things. So at the right. end, we just keep focusing on making it more efficient. You know? It's it's funny, Bruno, because it kind of goes back to uh, what you said earlier about, you know, there was that moment in the industry when everyone was clamoring for transparency and then they got transparency and then everyone was like, oh, crap. You know, <laughs> like the transparency was almost too much. You know, it's like how many millions of lines of data would you like to look at? You know, I mean, we can we can provide that. You know, the transparency wasn't didn't lead to what people thought it would lead to. And I think that's why that went away as a narrative. But it's it's really interesting, you know, what you say about Web3. It's it needs to operate in the background. It needs to be something where people can just achieve the the commerce that they're trying to achieve in a simple way without having to think about what's going on in the background. So that is that's a really interesting and interesting way to put it. Another thing that you said that I thought was interesting was that Web3, you see it as a community-creating machine. Do you want to tell us about that? Absolutely. The fact that you have traceability on transactions, you know, someone that purchases something from you, you know, you have their wallet address. So you could, you know, send them a gift, a reward, another collectible, a message even. And that really creates this, you know, peer-to-peer ethos and ecosystem that, you know, obviously Napster tried to kind of do illegally, you know, back, you know, 20 years ago or more. But the the whole idea of you connecting with me because you like my music and you funded me, you provided, you know, you purchased something for me, you provided financing in that sense or support, uh, financial support, I think is, is great, right? Right now, when you're thinking about communities, there's always a monopoly, like a, a big tech company that sits in between you and the relationship to your fans, whether it's a, you know, a Google or a Facebook or an Apple or a Microsoft or a Spotify or Apple, etc. So they don't really disclose who you know, their customers are. So you have no way of accessing you know, that database of fans that are your daily listeners and your followers, which really creates a lag, I think, in the market in terms of creating that engagement from you know, people who want to support you directly. I think Web3 changes that. I think communities will be different within Web3. You know, we're starting to see the beginnings of Web3 social platforms you know, like Lanster built on the Lance protocol. And there's a handful of projects that are really exploring and experimenting you know, within Web3 social. Uh, even Blue Sky, which is kind of the, another answer to Twitter. The future of Twitter, I guess you could say, was initially uh, seeded by Jack Dorsey. So what I think will happen is people will you know, need infrastructure and tools to be able to message and airdrop and you know, communicate with their fans directly, wallet to wallet. That requires you know, a little bit more education, a little bit more infrastructure and tooling, but it's well underway already. Well, that's exciting. And I feel like maybe we should stop there and say, let's talk again in five or six years again and see where Revelator is at and see the what the fruits of Web3 have brought about. What do you think? That sounds good. And I think also the reality is we'll probably start to see more Roblox, more, you know, attraction around 
music being used in gaming and new types of monetization and distribution channel. I don't think that streaming will just be the only you know, dominant model forever, especially yeah. in the next decade. Yeah, I agree. Well, Bruno Gaz is the founder and CEO of Revelator. Bruno, thanks so much for being with me today on The Future of What? That's great. Thanks for having me, Portia. And that's our show. Our theme song is Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five and is played by permission. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Today's show was engineered by Lewis Walker at Relationary Marketing in Nashville and was produced by Dana Rogers and Henrik Bick. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. See you next time. Can I have a taste of your ice cream?